this is, um, as, as you see, the, the title is The Saga Continues, because obviously it's not over. Um, how many of you in this room have seen a patient who was septic? Okay, so everybody. So you already know about it. So are there any questions? I think we're done. Because realistically, uh, it, it is interesting, and there's things that you want to do. And, and today's discussion is not going to be an in-depth discussion on sepsis. It's meant just to review some things, to touch on some of the issues um, that we could spend probably a day. I mean, they do. They have conferences on looking at what's going on at the molecular level with sepsis and trying to figure out how do we interfere with things. So I'm not going to try and do that today. But, you know, what I'd like for you to do, and hopefully you've been doing that, is to recognize what goes on, um, you know, with sepsis and uh, all these steps that you see on there and controlling hyperglycemia. We, I mean, there's all kinds of studies that we used to say, oh, yes, we should do this. And now they're saying, no, let's don't do that because things didn't work out so well. Tight control of glucose seemed to be great, except some people controlled it too tightly and people got hypoglycemic and made things worse. So, you know, within measures. Uh, and I thought this is a graphic I used to use, and so I'll stick a few of those in um, from things I used to talk about in the past. Um, you know, everybody has theirs. For cardiologists, you know, a myocardial infarction, time is muscle, and for a stroke, time is brain, and for us, realistically, sepsis is, you know, time is life. Because if you interact, if you can get this under control, the quicker the better. Um, we know that there's a lot of bacterial products that are associated with sepsis. Uh, the big one with gram-negatives, as you've already heard about and you already know about, is lipopolysaccharides, also called endotoxin, almost kind of interchangeably in a lot of the publications. Um, but there are also other things that you can see with uh, gram-positive bacteria, including, you know, peptidoglycans, lipotrichoic acid. Those things kind of mimic endotoxin in, in many ways. They're external toxins, so they can cause um, issues as well as the other uh, exotoxins like toxic shock syndrome one um, and both uh, and staph uh, as well as streptococcal uh, exotoxin A because uh, these act almost like super antigens that can bypass macrophages and directly stimulate T cells. Um, and if you want an in-depth discussion on that, there's a person who's on this call whose picture is on the end and that's Dr. Canella who can talk in-depth on all of the pathways. Uh, we used to have a colleague that was with us in the past, who's, um, he was a Lishmania expert as well as an inflammatory uh, alternative pathways of inflammation. He would talk to me on alternative pathways of alternative pathways of alternative pathways of inflammation, and my eyes would glaze over. <laughs> <laughs> and then it would talk infection control to him, and he'd go, I don't, I don't, I don't do infection control. So um, we all have our, our fortes. Uh, I'm really interested. Uh, and I think this is another area that's very fertile, is looking at especially the gram-positive, but it can also occur with other bacteria, is quorum sensing. Are you familiar with that concept? Quorum sensing is that bacteria um, make compounds that act, if you will, like hormones. I mean, how do our organs communicate with each other? I mean, your brain communicates, you know, your glucose is too high, right? So you have to make insulin. Well, now it's too low, so now what do you do? So you're always trying to stay in homeostasis. Well, bacteria kind of do that. And they notice that, you know, if you get uh, staph aureus in your blood, and it starts making toxin, your body just laughs at it because it's like, okay, it's minute amounts. It doesn't matter. But if it doesn't make exotoxins until that it gets to a certain critical mass and then 
then blows everything out with a huge amount of toxin, that's an issue for your body. How does that happen? Because it does happen. And it seems to be furan-derived compounds that do that. And there are people who've been doing this now for a couple of decades and looking into, can we come up with compounds that interfere with quorum sensing? I think it's a really interesting area. Uh, so there's some interesting things going on with that too. And yes, the first thing with toxic shock syndrome was rely tampons, as most of you remember. Um, so I can't, I didn't bring a gram negative that I can show you. I probably have one in my colon, but you can't see it. Um, <laughs> you know, you need an oil immersion eye to see it. So you can't really see that. Uh, so these are just diagrams looking at where is it ex uh, on gram negatives, as most of you know, it's on the external cell wall agent and just some schematics looking at where is it located. So you understand that when we're giving things that kill bacteria, whether it's going to be antibiotics that can bind to this, and then once our immune system gets old and starts to fragment this, this is not good for us because these cause issues in the human body. Um, there is this really nice paper. Uh, and if you all like, I can send it to you. I have it um, probably on that laptop, wherever it went over there. Um, and it was back uh, in 2021. It's called New Insights into Lactopolysaccharide and Activation Mechanisms in Sepsis. It's data dense. So if you want something to help you go to sleep at night, I recommend this. Um, but it's really good. It's a nice review. I've just taken a couple of pictures out of this to look at. Um, when you look at having lipopolysaccharide and other compounds similar, uh, they combine to CD14. They also combine to uh, toll-like receptor 4 and some other mechanisms. And you see, this is just how things get activated in cells. Uh, so, um, I don't know. Well, somebody did. Thank you. Um, these activate, you know, pro-inflammatory cytokines, uh, interleukins, etc. Some of these are TLR4-independent pathways. Some of these are um, dependent on TLR4 activation. The one on the left-hand side that you see is um, looking at the GI tract, and we know that when your GI tract is working well, that you have the, you know, through all of uh, the lamin-appropriate uh, related cells that you have tight junctions and keeping everything intact. But once that you start seeing things happening like swelling, um, which you can see with sepsis, you're getting edema in the bowel, said, you know, with everywhere else, that you lose some of these tight junctions uh, and bacteria can certainly get in between that, invade and get into the lower levels into the lamina propria uh, where there are immune cells. Remember that in the GI tract, you basically have immunity from your mouth to your anus and not the planet. That's your anus. <laughs> it's a little different. Everybody, it was jokes. Um, yes, and about the Klingons. We won't go there. <laughs> but um, remember that you do have a lot of immune surveillance. You have immune surveillance in your GI tract. You have it in your lungs, right? You have it in your brain with glial cells. You have it in, on the next slide, um, in the liver. But what else do you have in the liver? You see all those little look like hooks, that's TLR4. All these cells have receptors that can get turned on by lipopolysaccharide, by endotoxin. It's just H H2 inhibitor. It's in tight. Um, that, you know, it, it's... H2 receptors are scattered throughout the body, and it depends on which SARS-CoV-2 that we were looking at, which variant or now subvariant, would attach to that preferentially in some areas and not. So all this is intertwined in getting a really brisk immune response to that, and that's the problem is sometimes our body 
it, it wants to get rid of this and it becomes really exuberant. <clears throat> and it doesn't know when to turn itself off. And that's the problem. It's not so much that sepsis kills us, it's we kind of do it to ourselves. Same as, you know, if you got infected with Ebola. Um, if you can keep people alive for two weeks, your immune system will pick up on it and you can clear it. And that's what's happened with some people, even without management. Well, that's kind of few and far between. So if you can decrease the amount of inflammation um, effectively, that's going to help. So uh, I would refer you uh, to some of my colleagues if you want a more in-depth discussion on that. I mean, we could even talk about some of this going forward, but not today. Uh, so that's the question is, and that's what they're gonna ask, you know, the ED physician. So you see somebody coming in, do they have sepsis or not? Is this going on, you know, what is going on with them? Uh, there came out many, many years ago, this whole consensus conference definition of uh, what's sepsis. And one of the things that was there initially and is no longer there is this term severe sepsis that's gone. So uh, we're looking at uh, SERS, sepsis, septic shock, et cetera. Um, it is interesting that UNICEF talks a sepsis consensus conference. Anytime that you see a consensus statement, basically the definition is that 51% of people agreed or more. So it's just kind of, you know, looking at data and uh, not necessarily grade driven kind of information. Uh, this was an old Venn diagram. Uh, how many of you recognize a Venn diagram? Because you don't use them that much anymore. Uh, but it was pretty reasonable. And I think when you're looking at, you know, with SERS, other things can cause activation, uh, you know, what we would recognize as being SERS as non-infectious. I mean, you know, people with pancreatitis certainly can come in and that's our conundrum is do we give antibiotics or not? Is this just the inflammation that you see from pancreatitis or is it infected? And a lot of people opt to, well, let's just go ahead and treat it, you know, assuming it's infected. Then you may see some of the, the other issues that we have to deal with, like C. diff or something else, because that it wasn't infected and now we've got issues or maybe now we've created a resistant organism by doing that. Burn patients, we've learned that most burn patients don't need to be on prophylactic antibiotics that, you know, you watch them and to breathe and you just, you know, and you're going to learn that, you know, when you're at Tampa General. So there is a role for antibiotics with burn patients, but it's not the way that we used to do it. The way I was taught was you just treat everybody because then you generate resistant organisms and then you wish you didn't. Trauma certainly can do that as well. You can get hypovolemic shock, right? Cardiogenic shock, it's not infectious. So we have to try and figure out what's infected and what's not. And that's where the other side of this coin comes in with bacteremia, which Dr. Ayler has so nicely discussed this morning. So just to refresh your memory, and I think most of you probably um, already know this, and I don't know why I got this other unfortunate symbol in there. Uh, with white counts, but uh, so I think most of you remember what SERS is. It's just a, uh, a clinical response. So you're seeing either uh, they're hyperthermic or you don't like to see hypothermic. Uh, it's bad to be room temperature, really bad. Uh, so the closer you get to that is not good. Uh, you know, heart rate's greater than 90, respiration's greater than 20. Uh, white count above uh, 12K, or if it's less than that, which is supposed to be that symbol, uh, or 10% uh, immature neutrophils is not a good sign, tells you something inflammatory is going on. And you could get other inflammatory markers that would help you with that too. But that's where we start looking at it. And then um, we're trying to figure out what's going on. Why is this occurring? And is it sepsis or is it one of the other conditions? 
So obviously, if you've got SERS and um, at least two or more of the SERS criteria, and now you, you either see uh, radiographically an abscess or something else um, clinically, or you can see what looks like it on a scan or something, you're getting ideas that this is probably going to be infectious. Uh, so these all came out, as you can see, back in 1992, uh, which seems like probably a generation ago. All these other things, if we, if we think someone has sepsis, are things that you can um, obtain, and people have recommended a lot of these, sometimes yes, sometimes no. We get to uh, uh, percalcitonins, that was the big deal. Uh, people used to basically yell at you if you didn't get procalcitonins. I did a review of what was going on in our institution several years ago because someone asked and found that only 12% of them were actually done correctly. They got one uh, procal and then no others. What does that do? It doesn't do anything. And so if it's elevated, what happened to it? You didn't use it correctly. Probably better used that if you're going to use it for antimicrobial stewardship in people who are not septic and you're trying to say, I don't even know if they need antibiotics or not. It's just part of the decision making. So you, you can get it, but if you're going to get it, you need to follow it up within just a few hours to see if your therapy is working. Um, and to be honest, I, I don't know that I use it that much. I mean, people get it. I've seen people get it for urinary tract infection. Okay, well, you just spent somebody's money, so what, how did it help you? It really didn't. Um, so I'm not going to read this whole list. You've had a chance to look at it, but we do get lactates. Uh, those are very helpful in looking at how well they're oxygenating, how well their kidneys working, what's going with that. Do they have an ileus? How well is the gut working? Is that the portal? You know, in this institution, yeah, you've got you know, severely immune compromised individuals, bridging, you know, bacteria across the gut is going to be a big issue. So translocation is a problem. Are they thrombocytopenic? Uh, is their liver affected? Is their bilirubin up? All those kind of things are things to look at. Uh, for us, it's really more this, you know, clinically looking at them. You know, what's their uh, consciousness? Are they confused? What are, what's going on with them? Um, I like the, the term that, I mean, I... I got yelled at if I didn't say altered mental status. And now people are saying, well, he came in altered. And I said, is he missing a leg or what? <laughs> I mean, how is he altered? And I get, you know, like, Ugh. I understand. So what's going on? Why is there problems in the CNS? You know, what's going on there? Are they tachycardic? What's going on with that? So then guess what? Um, that's going to affect what? Oxygenation potentially. And their ability to pump and squeeze and get blood to all these areas. If, if the pump's not working, that's going to be an issue. So, again, is it cardiogenic or something else? And tachypnic, uh, are they jaundiced? How well are their kidneys working? What's going on with the other things we just looked at, with platelets, et cetera? Um, so, you know, what's going on with this individual? And that's where we, we classically see things. Realistically, I used to put on the slide, they used to talk about cold shock and warm shock. And we would see that clinically. You go in and see somebody, they have what looks like SIRS, and they're, they're having a fever. They're hot to touch, they're diaphoretic, um, and they look red almost sometimes. Well, that's because they've vasodilated. Then you go in and see them a few hours later, and now they're getting cold and clammy and maybe cyanotic or something. That's the cold shock. Now they're clamping down, trying to perfuse organs. So you know something not good is going on. You just have to figure out what is it. So why were these definitions important when they came out? The big one was because now we can look at different pieces of what I call the sepsis movie. And what part of the movie is that person at? So you can look at this 
investigationally and try and see what might work in this part of sepsis and probably, you know, as we found out, a lot of things don't work. The other was for reimbursement. It was really helpful for reimbursement um, and that if you coded it correctly, that you could get extra money, obviously. If you just put sepsis, it'll give you X amount of money, but if you detail it out as to exactly what's going on, you get paid better. Um, the other is looking at uh, predictive scoring for this, same as what you do for pneumonias. You know, you've got a couple of scoring systems for that. There's several scoring systems, and I won't go through all of them. There's uh, news and news, uh, which are very similar, looking at what's, what do you need to look at? Do they need to go to the ICU or not? I think we do pretty well with that clinically, but, you know, um, people who are doing quality improvement want to have numbers associated with it, and I think that's fine. Um, you can probably do either one of those if you have an app on your phone that will let you enter the numbers and give you what their news score is, the mu score, and also the SOFA scores. You can see it gets to be a little detailed because they get points the worse that you are with, you know, cardiovascular system, respiratory system, coagulation, um, looking at nervous system, and, you know, where are they on the Glasgow scale, uh, what's going on with their bilirubin, and what's going on with their kidneys. So all those organ systems, the worst, get you higher scores, and obviously that's going to look at mortality. Uh, so what's your chance of 30 days being alive after this, which the worst the numbers, the worst your uh, chance of staying alive. Well, that's a lot. And then we got into this, the quick sofa or Q sofa. Yes. And most of you who know me for a little bit know that's my brain thinking that somebody put a Q on a sofa. Um, what the hell is that? So it's very simplistically, you're looking at three scoring. What's your blood pressure doing? What's the respiratory rate doing? And what's their mentation doing? Very close to SERS. And when this came out, it said, you know, that their service criteria being replaced by this because it was easier to do. When in fact, that's not really what happened. Um, other studies came out in CHEST in 2018, basically comparing uh, QSOFA and SERS, and basically says that, well, SERS is much better than QSOFA for sepsis diagnosis, and QSOFA is a little bit better than SERS in predicting hospital mortality, but not by much. So I used to see notes all the time, and they would tell you what their QSOFA was every day, and it's like, okay, I'm not sure that that's all that helpful. Yes, initially it's fine, because you, you're seeing where you are, but then you can clinically follow them. Uh, some people still like to do that. I think some are kind of getting away from it, and most of the guidelines that are out with this don't really recommend doing QSOFA anymore. Um, so these are just the things that, um, you know, in the whole gestalt of trying to manage a septic patient, depending on what's causing it, depending on, um, you know, where are they as far as their immune status, comorbidities, et cetera. Um, all these things, without reading them all to you, uh, we've known for a long time are very important. And this hasn't changed in the 40 plus years, realistically, of trying to manage septic patients. Yeah, it's just trying to get them recognized very early, trying to interact with them very early, and picking correct antibiotics, which we'll touch on. So, you know, what gives you the highest mortality? And it's common sense, you know, um, if you can't breathe, then you can't oxygenate, you can't keep other tissues alive, and that's going to be bad. Um, so abdominal issues with that, you know, this is a very calorie dependent condition. You burn lots of calories when you're septic and it just drives me crazy when I got people in a unit for like three weeks and they're getting no nutrition. I mean, not TPN or anything. And it's like, you know, uh-oh. 
Well, so we will go on and talk about my slide there in the middle. I don't know what happened. There we go. Thank you, Dr. Ehler. Uh, so all those you know, are very important uh, in managing patients and a little outside the scope of this. Um, is it a nosocomial infection? Uh, somebody's been in a hospital, those pretend usually a little bit worse because then we're thinking about resistant organisms and what's our you know, management going to be for that. Um, and all the other things, you know, as Dr. Ehler already mentioned, if you isolate from blood, staph aureus or, you know, and, and um, severely immune compromised individuals, fungi is, is not a good thing um, and can portend bad things down the road. Gram negatives, uh, occasionally polymicrobial bacteremias do occur depending on what's going on with the patient. Uh, what was their history? I mean, you know, people can have severe trauma, get hit by a truck. Um, and get dragged through the dirt, and yes, their their blood cultures may grow more than one organism. Uh, as I mentioned before, you know, hypothermia is not a good condition. It tells you that your immune system is having real trouble with this, and you're having trouble even keeping your your temperature up. Um, age greater than 40, thank God, I'm 39. I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> um, and the list of comorbidities is, is a real problem. Um, shoot, sorry. Um, so most of these that you know, um, obviously anything that's a congenital issue with the heart, one of the biggest conditions, as you well know, is what's the biggest risk factor for endocarditis? Yeah, it's called HIBGIA. You ever heard of HIBGIA? HIBGIA, H-I-B-G-I-A. HIBGIA, had it before, got it again. Prior endocarditis. Yes, I went to a morning report as a resident. He said, I'm, they're presenting a fascinating case of HIBGIA. And I went, it was a GI bleed. And I thought, what? Have you heard that? How much? And he said, yes, it was HIBGIA. I had it before, got it again. Uh, so if there's something going on that is a potential nidus for some of these organisms, like as Dr. Ehler mentioned, staph, that's very sticky, makes dextran. So you need to think about, is, is that going to be the source? Uh, do they have a splenectomy? And when uh, I was a fellow, we were looking at trying to come up and remember what organisms there were. So we initially called it S-bed to try and remember the organism because it was a splenic bed. If you take the spleen out, there's just a splenic bed left. So it was S-bed. Now some people say beds. I don't care. It's just trying to remember the organisms. Um, you remember the organisms? Okay, I'm not going to take the time to do it. So talk to me later. Uh, same thing with... Same thing with cirrhosis. Uh, and we worry because, remember all the uh, immune system that's in our liver, and so when you get cirrhosis, guess what doesn't work too well? Everything, even your immune system. So then you start looking at you know, the organisms, and the best we could come up with at the time, and it was Jim Cullis and myself, and I think Dr. Sennett was involved in part of that, was liver, like liver, um, which gives you an idea, you know, with you know, listeria, perhaps leptospirosis, uh, Yersinia, Vibrios, and Aeromonas, and some of the other gram-negatives that you can see. Uh, please don't forget, if you're outside of the two organisms on the north end of town, uh, septic abortion or uh, postpartum pelvic septo, uh, septic thrombophobitis are things that, you know, you do worry a lot about. I mean, drug use, you're putting stuff in your body, and a lot of it's cut with talc, and talc is like putting sandpaper in your veins when it flows through. It just is very abrasive. And um, so that's an issue. And then obviously immune compromised, and it depends on the uh, amount of immune compromisation as to what organisms might be encountered. So realistically, um, this is what we do. This is what you do. Uh, you've been doing it for three plus years, probably. 
and uh, you're seeing so many initial evaluation, but people you think are, you know, septic or might be going into septic shock or in septic shock, because that's probably when you're going to get an ID consult. Hi, patient with sepsis, come tell us what to do. If they're in the unit, you already have pulmonary critical care managing that part. If they want to know what the antibiotics are, well, you want to make sure, obviously, all that's been done, hopefully, that you secure their airway, your volume repleting them, um, and hopefully that will help. If it doesn't, then other things, you know, are going to need to be addressed as far as pressors, et cetera. Um, you don't want to delay things too much because remember that time is life. And we've learned that over time. If you said, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's late for the labs. To, I mean, you need to wait for some labs to come back. But we got blood cultures. We'll figure out, you know, wait, you know, 24, 48 hours and see. And then we can figure out what antibiotics to use. Well, you can. But the chance that patient surviving is like 10%, 15%, because it's going to only get worse. So you don't want to wait, unfortunately. Um, get root quote routine labs. A lactate's helpful. You need to know what you're starting with. What, what's the movie starting with to see how it progresses with their blood gases, blood cultures, as you already heard, uh, hopefully from two distinct sites. Be very cautious and reminding people also when you're out, don't draw from a line, if at all possible. It, because lines get colonized, the hubs get colonized, and that's where you see contamination. So if you're going to use a line, make sure you get a peripheral from somewhere. And don't just write blood on it. You know, where is it from? If it's from a line, if it's from a triple lumen, which colored line is it from to help you? Because maybe it's a line infection. Maybe you need to pull a line. And it'd be nice to know. What if you can't pull that line? The person's had 27 lines, but it, and IR is telling you, I'm done. I, I mean, I don't know what to do with this. So now if you can isolate it, maybe you can therapeutically try and treat it with block therapy or something else, uh, which is beyond the scope of this. But, you know, there's a lot of things to consider. Uh, as we mentioned with the, the blood cultures, um, you know, and getting anaerobic and aerobic, and it does draw blood. We're getting a lot of blood from these people. So expect they're probably going to get anemic. Um, and sometimes that's confusing because what if they have an intermittent GI bleed and that's the source of their sepsis? Now, you know, we don't know. Maybe we do, maybe we don't. Uh, if there's other sites, and of course the most easy site to get it from is urine. I think everybody that shows up in an EP gets a urine scent. And how many of those come back growing something? 90 plus percent, maybe, maybe not that high. How many of these have had a completely stone cold normal urinalysis and grow bacteria and they want to treat it? That's another talk in itself. That's asymptomatic bacteria, doesn't need to be treated. Uh, and then imaging, if you need to, and it's not uncommon now, people hit the door and you've got a CT scanner and an ED, and they just, it's kind of like, well, let's get them from the waiting area through the scanner and then you know, we've got that information and somebody's got to pay for it. So um, fluid resuscitation, uh, you give them as much as you need to keep the blood pressure up and hopefully that works. If not, then you have to start thinking about uh, doing other things. Crystalloids are great. Uh, it's recommended to use normal saline uh, instead of like half normal saline, et cetera, or D5 because D5 is just a lot of water. And you're trying to keep fluids intravascular. You don't want them getting up because that's why you start squeezing down on your vascular system and people turn blue and get cold is that they can't perfuse organs. So you want to keep your uh, circulatory system as open as possible. Um, if you're giving a lot of normal saline, though, they can get hyperchloremic. So it's recommended you got to keep an eye on the chlorine. Uh, and a lot of people prefer to use Ringer's lactate because it's more balanced. 
which is not a bad idea. Some people just always use ringers. Uh, that's going to depend on what hospital you're at and what people's preferences are. But the thing you don't want to use are any kind of starches. That was a great idea. Starches are going to keep everything in the cardiovascular system, but people don't do well with those. They, they get more problems uh, with their uh, kidneys, et cetera. Uh, in some circumstances, giving albumin might be helpful, but remember, you're going to pee out albumin in 24 or 36 hours or so. So it's it's going to be very limited, and only in some conditions will people consider using albumin. Um, antibiotics, I am not going to tell you what to use with what organism, et cetera, because you already know a fair amount of this, and it's going to depend on what's going on with that individual. But uh, we want to get this as soon as possible, and you already know it from prior institutions or these institutions, what's not uncommon to see? If they think somebody's septic, what are they going to be on? Vancomycin. Yes. Maybe something else. Vancand. Vancencephapine. Yeah. So you're going to get gram-negative coverage, you're going to get gram-positive coverage. If you're at Moffitt and you're not clear what's going on, um, and depending on the condition and immune you know, uh, say they've got an ANC of two. Um, you know, do they have a fungal infection? You know, is it something in the lung now that are septic from that? So it may be fungal, uh, rarely viruses, but viruses can in certain circumstances cause sepsis too. So it's just something to think about. But generally, yes, gram negative, gram positive, you want good coverage. Um, if this is somebody who's been in a hospital for a while or was in another hospital now transferred to you because, oh, you're so much better treating sepsis than we are. Do they have a drug-resistant organism? Other things that Dr. Ayler was pointing out. That's where you may opt to go really big guns, and if you just don't know, to consider using a carbapenem. Um, and I, I agree with Dr. Canelli. You might want to go ahead and use two agents with this. Aminoglycosides are fine to use, even though they got a lot of bad rap. The good news is we don't use them that much, so things tend not to be as resistant as they used to be. So I think that's a very reasonable thing to consider. Um, and then all these other things are, you know, the, the history, if you can get one, is going to be really helpful in trying to figure out what's going on with this individual. I mean, and a physical examination, obviously. Uh, all these things are really helpful, and these are the things we kind of dwell on. And um, if you have the information, it's great. If you have, like, almost none of this, and here you've got this person who was just found down in a septic, and there's nobody to give you a history then you're going to have to be unclear and try and figure it out as you're treating them. So what I would tell you, and, and yes, there is the, uh, as Dr. Cannell said, I decided to put it in there. Um, you know, with antibiotics, uh, obviously you don't want to go <clears throat> to do IV to, <clears throat> excuse me, IV to PO conversions too quickly until they're really stable. Um, and if you're looking at, okay, well, I want to get them out of the ICU. I think they're stable enough. They can go to the floor. That might be a consideration to go IV to PO. While they're septic, you dose high. I mean, that's when you're giving Zosin at 4.5, even though they got a creatinine at two and a half. You dose high because that's the volume of distribution in a septic patient. Normally, that's the bathtub. That's the bathtub when you're septic. Uh, Dr. Canella has got a seed grant that later on this year at the VA, we're going to be looking at pharmacokinetic data in septic patients, doing like we would getting a Venco level and I mean, glycoside level, we're going to get beta-lactam level in certain uh, beta-lactams to look and see how effective that is. It's being done at other institutions. It's not being done at the VA system. So we want to look at that you know, our system. And if it works good, then 
get a bigger grant, start doing it um, on a larger scale. Um, so don't over adjust for renal dysfunction, because if you do, you may give suboptimal doses of antibiotics because of this issue and they won't survive too well. So hit them hard because it's better to have, as I was taught many, many years ago, better to have a live patient with renal insufficiency or on dialysis than to have a patient who you don't have to worry about that because they're dead. So they don't go on dialysis. What a cost savings. No, it's not. Um, you know, consider the pharmacodynamic optimization. Um, you want to look for adverse events. And the other is be flexible. If you have an ID PharmD, as we do in this room, and they're seeing the same patient you are, and they come to you with recommendations, just saying, maybe you might want to consider this. What should you do? You should go up to them. You should look them right in the eyes and say two words. Teach me. They know things. It's like nurses. You don't listen to them. You might wish you did because they know things. They'll pick up on stuff that you might not have seen or other people haven't seen. Our phone Ds are excellent. I don't know how we used to get by without them. They tell me that all the time, too, so that's okay. <laughs> um, but you need to listen. We, we work as a team. If it's not clear what's going on, everybody speak up. And, you know, a lot of the times you're thinking because of your experiences aren't necessarily the experiences of other people. So you work as a team. So you have to be flexible on this. It might be better. If it's going to be really empiric therapy, and I'll tell you what I was taught as a med student by one of my mentors that I said something was empiric therapy for an intra-abdominal condition. He said, what's the true definition of the word empiric? Is it something you do before you have all the facts? Shaking the head, no. And I thought, well, you don't want to BS Maureen Muffson. Nice guy, but no. I said, I guess I don't know. He said, the true definition of the word empiric is what the ignorant do to the helpless. So why did you pick that antibody combination? At that time, it was ticarcillin and tobramycin. T and T, sounds great. Um, so you have to think about what are you treating? I mean, and if it truly is, we don't know. We're waiting for the data to come back, but we need to start antibiotics. You do start really broad, unfortunately, and then narrow down once you get more information if possible. Uh, so you already know the monitoring, looking at what's there. The best thing to follow, God, we used to put Swan-Gains catheters or pulmonary catheters in. Those cause sometimes more issues than gave help. Uh, so just follow their mean arterial pressure. You want a 60 to 70 and follow the urine output and their CVP. And you'd like to keep it as close to those numbers as possible. And what's your oxygen, oxygenation doing centrally as well? Uh, you'd like for it to be at least 70%. Uh, follow the lactates. Hopefully, as things go well, that the, if the lactate's really elevated, it's going to come down. So all these are the usual things that we see that reinforce that we're doing the right thing. So if those don't change, something's not right. Um, and you know, as I mentioned, even in the surviving sepsis campaign for this last year, I don't even recommend getting procals anymore. Um, but following labs, which is drawing more blood from them, um, and do we absolutely need to have a CMP and everything every day? Eh, people do it, but how much information does it give you? You probably get by with every other day, especially as they start getting better. You might not need, to, even though they're in critical care, you might not need labs every day. Or maybe you can get the CBC one day and CMPs the other next day and kind of stagger it out, save that person some blood. The last thing you want to do is have to give them two units of blood because you bled them out. Um, I just 
nosocomially drawing it. Um, and make sure that you do a really good exam. Uh, so if the stuff is failing, why? Um, is it the wrong antibiotics? Is it a resistant organism? Uh, as we're looking, uh, and some people forget to look at it. What's their albumin? Oh, they got an albumin of 1.9. Okay. And guess what? They're on a highly protein-bound antibiotic. What's that going to do? It's not going to effectively get to a lot of areas. So maybe you should pick something else. So it's a good time to look at what's going on with that person. Um, the other thing is, just to mention to you, this is old data. This came out in 2010. You know, the, the initial presser uh, that's felt to be the best is going to be norepinephrine initially. And uh, we used to give a lot of dopamine. Oh, God, and then renal dose dopamine. Remember that? Oh, it's, it's going to be cardioprotective and all this stuff. Uh, as it turns out, they're both very similar between norepinephrine and dopamine as far as, you know, blood pressure support. What's the problem? Why don't we use dopamine anymore? Because it caused a lot of arrhythmias, a lot of AFib, which is not good if you have sepsis. So we tend to stay away from that. Uh, you can use other uh, inotropes. Vasopressin maybe might be useful in some cases. Uh, steroids, but not like what people had done in the past, giving these industrial strength doses of methylprednisolone. There was actually a VA study called the methylprednisolone severe sepsis. Um, and people did do real well. They did not good if um, their uh, creatinine, I forget what the, it was, it was like 1.8 and above. So if their creatinine was elevated, which is not uncommon, they didn't do as well. And then if they developed a nosocomial infection after getting it, they did really worse. Well, one, maybe you can select out for is, you know, the renal impairment, but how do you select out for getting an infection after that? Kind of hard to do. So low dose, 200 milligrams a day of hydrocortisone is, is reasonable. Uh, and you may need to give blood. Blood certainly pulls things in. It's osmotically stabilizing, you know, for the cardiovascular system. Uh, the only problem is if you're going to give blood, you don't immediately then want to dose them with aminoglycosides because blood tends to bind aminoglycosides. So your level may fall down somewhat. Uh, we learned that a long time ago in the burn units. They were pumping lots of blood in people and trying to give them aminoglycosides at the same time. Uh, so obviously, if people respond, then we can de-escalate things, uh, stop fluids, decrease them, uh, get them off the vent if at all possible. Now, if you fluid overloaded them, now you need to diurese them. Uh, and there are the antibiotics, if at all possible. Maybe go IV to PO if you can. Um, that's not to say that we shouldn't do all these other things, especially number two, nutrition. That's a big deal for people because you're losing so many calories with this condition. They need it. Um, whether if the gut's working and they're on a vent, put a feeding tube in them. Feed them. Um, stress ulcer prophylaxis, most people are going to end up getting on a PPI at some point. God, we used to, in the old days, put an NG tube down and every four hours give them antacids. I mean, I thought that was more punitive than anything else. And it doesn't really, you know, and then if they aspirate, now they've got it in their lungs, so that's not good. Much better now. Um, there are, Neuromuscular blocking agents might be uh, other things if they're on a vent, uh, making sure that you do uh, VTE prophylaxis. Um, insulin is fine, keeping them reasonably controlled, but really tight control. If you're trying to keep them at a glucose of 120, they'll probably go low at some point. And that's not what you want. You want them, it's okay to run a little higher uh, than maybe with the, you don't want them three or 400, but if they're like a 180 or something, it's okay. Um, External cooling, let's say somebody has 
um, issues. They've got a lot of liver damage, maybe hyperperfusion because of sepsis, and maybe you don't want to give them acetaminophen or other things. The next best thing is put them on a cooling blanket. But make sure cooling blanket is cooling, not freezing blanket. Because I've seen that. I mean, you go in and the blanket is like 65 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, I had that a long time ago and the med student said, we put them on a cooling blanket and I put my hand up. They just made the bed and the patient wasn't in the room. It was freezing. I said, lay on it. I don't want to. I said, no, no, you, this is what you're having your patient do. And they have a fever, lay on it. And he's like, and he starts having rigors because it's freezing. It's tepid. So you do want it a little lower. So if you get 78 to 80, it's not bad. You know, if you can put your hand on it, it's feeling okay. You don't want it in the 60s because that's, because what happens then? Then you vasoconstrict, so then your core temp goes up. Not good. Um, so those are fine. And then we already talked about mechanical ventilation. Uh, I do want to just mention to you, you know, the big deal was a few years ago, the Merrick protocol, uh, where they were giving vitamin C, thiamine, hydrocortisone, um, and then they did that for four days until the patient was uh, discharged from the unit or was so much better. Um, the initial study that came out that favored that was not much, I mean, 47 patients and said it worked really great. And then there was a second study of 167 patients. Um, but in this one, all they were giving was vitamin C and, um, and they were on a presser versus just presser. And uh, supposedly the vitamin C reduced crude 28 day mortality, but there was no difference in um, you know, their ICU or hospital free days. So it was kind of positive, but not greatly positive. And there's been a lot of studies after that that just basically say that you know, it's not a great thing to do. There's still ongoing trials looking at this. Um, I mean, vitamin C is fine, but, you know, I don't know that it's going to really do too much. Thiamine, maybe, depending on what's going on with them. Um, but the hydrocortisone is not unreasonable. If you look at 50 Q6, that would be, you know, with renal, uh, adrenal insufficiency. Um, and if you're, it depends on what you're using if they're um, intubated. What's the name of the... Uh, the drug that's used to um, keep them a little sedated starts with an M. Usually, I give it as a one-time dose. Metronate. Is that correct? I can't remember. I'll have to look. Uh, when they're going to um, uh, sedate people to, to intubate them, usually it's a one-time dose. I think it's no metomidate. Sorry, metomidate. I'm sorry. I'm out of caffeine. Um, it can suppress, you know, uh, your adrenocortical uh, system. So you might be a, a little adrenally insufficient. So that, if it's going to be that for a long time, usually you have to be on it for three days or more to really suppress your cortisol. So you might consider that. I mean, that's not unreasonable. Uh, so it's something else to look at. But with this, it's not the panacea that everybody was hoping for. Uh, and the last couple of slides, I'll show you what's been tried over the years and what doesn't work. I mean, there's all these high hopes looking at that whole, the sepsis movie. Can we interfere here? Can we interfere here? Can we interfere here? Can we interfere here? Um, and they're all great ideas, but, you know, in animal models or in paper, theoretically it should work. But then when we try it, it just doesn't seem to add that much. Um, what we were involved with is bullet number two was the anti-endotoxin monoclonals. We did the human HA1A and the murine E5 monoclonals. And it was funny because you got early sepsis decreases with HA1A and then E5 seemed to help a little bit later with sepsis. 
The FDA said, eh, that data's not so great, not large numbers of people, repeat it. So we did. The data swapped. So it was just abandoned because it's just like, why spend more money on this? I mean, it's not clear. It just doesn't seem to be working. The data is not consistent. Um, but as you can see, a lot of different things. Giving, you know, GCSF, giving more white cells. That makes, you know, that's what your body's doing. Let's even give more. Okay, well, that doesn't seem to help too uh, too much either. Uh, doing anti-TNF monoclonals or TNFIs um, was tried, didn't really work that well. I mean, just look at the whole list of things. Making people hypothermic. Sometimes they do it on their own. I'm not sure why it would make it better if we, you know, I mean, we're trying to put them in a coma or something else. Okay, but sepsis didn't work too well. Uh, hyperoxia, uh, putting people in an enhanced oxygen uh, arena, it doesn't work. Hypertonic saline has its own issues. I mean, you can look through this, even ibuprofen, people had an idea, you know, well, if we can cool off the inflammatory uh, response to some degree, um, it, there was preliminary data that looked pretty good, but then in larger studies just wasn't consistently good. Um, nitric oxide inhibitor, I mean, the, the list goes on. Um, and that's, this isn't even a complete list of things um, that uh, just had maybe a little bit of effect, but aren't consistently good. This is the goal. That's the goal. And you could put wife on there too, because that's what you want. You want them to leave the hospital. I found this was really funny years ago that they were selling these shirts to raise money for sepsis, uh, uh, some of the sepsis support programs and stuff. As my husband survived sepsis and all I got was this lousy shirt and of course in small print and my husband back, which is what you want. Um, so I'm gonna stop at that. Um, because I'm going to have to move over to the VA to go to a wonderful Joint Commission review at 10:30. Um, but I will tell you, and you can actually get this, or I think I have it. Um, but it's from a long time ago. It was one of the best talks at ICAC I've ever heard. It was Guido Majna, who was a, a professor of pathology at Harvard, and he gave this talk that was called "The Ancient Riddle of Sepsis," dating back to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians, they found these markings the hieroglyphs. And you see, it's almost like, you know, night at the museum, you know, can you translate this? Yes. Chicken, sun, hand, chicken, tilted head, lines, you know, what does that mean? Well, it was pronounced Ukedu. Uh, the Egyptians didn't know what this was, but that's what Ukedu was. They knew you could find it in the large bowel. They didn't understand it, but they knew if you had Ukedu, that sometimes Ukedo could get out of the bowel, and if it got into your blood, you died. So they would do like three to five days of purging enemas a month to get rid of Ukedo. And who knows how well that worked, but you know. Now I thought that was interesting, and when I got back, I told people, and then it was published, and it showed them, you know, that. And it was, it was very interesting that when I was at Tampa Journal many years ago, that you're writing your notes on paper, and then the fellows would, you know, write their note and I would co-sign the note, make any additions or whatever. Next day I'd come back and there's this drawn under my note. And it said, that's fun. So, Kato, because it was a bad thing and it was a joke. And I said, don't put that in a chart. <laughs> what the heck is that? You know, so it's like putting emoticons in a note. You know? <laughs> but yes, I remember the fellow too. So we had a discussion. Um, so I, I want to stop with that. I think that's as far as it'll go. Are there any questions or comments? I mean, this is just a, a very grand overview. 
Um, it's really interesting when I talked about the first few slides and looking at the signaling that goes on with this, we still don't understand sepsis completely. We did, maybe we'd do better with it. But um, it, it's very interesting in trying to come up with things to, once we see sepsis and if you can catch it early, maybe doing things and, and, uh, and help. But obviously antibiotics early can help. Make sure you get blood cultures before that, if at all possible, uh, as most places do. But I'll stop, do you have any questions? <laughs>